0: When I was in sixth grade, my family moved from the Twin Cities metro up to Grand Marais, Minnesota, half an hour from the Canadian border. You can probably hear that in my voice. Even though I was in sixth grade when I moved up there, it shaped me. And I, I would say when I moved up there as a sixth grader, I was still a pretty innocent kid. And so those of you who are under the illusion that if you leave the city and go to a small town, you will protect innocence in your children, not true. I, became, uh, I lost some of my innocence when I moved to Grand Marais. I was, I was pretty sheltered and surrounded by, I wouldn't say sheltered, I was surrounded by good Christian community in the Twin Cities. We moved up to Grand Marais, a smaller town, and I'm in the middle school trying to figure out what does it look like for me to fit in here. My dad is a pastor. Everybody knows that. And, and who am I? Who is Andrew? As a pastor's kid, what's my identity? How am I going to make friends in this small town, small school? And one of the ways that I, that, so that was middle of sixth grade, by the middle of seventh grade, I had some decisions to make about who I was going to be and what kind of company I was going to keep and what kind of friends I was going to be around. And some of the friends that I was building friendship with, we were kind of getting into this culture where it was cool to do everything wrong, to break the rules. That was this group of friends. And so one of the activities that we started dabbling with was theft. I'm your pastor. (laughs) And and, you know, it's just kind of that young, youthful age. You're trying to figure out who you are. And, and so we started trying to steal things. And two occasions. My parents are here. They don't know about this story. <laughs> two occasions. One, I was in a store and found something that I wanted to steal. And I had this great plan of how I was going to do it. And so I started to make this, to, to steal this item from the store. And somebody caught me they said, hey, what are you doing? You can't take that. Wait right here. I'm going to go get the owner. Did I wait? No, I bolted. I bolted. So I was caught, but I ran away, got off the hook. A couple weeks later, I was in one of my friends. His parents owned like this weird little store in Grand Marais. There's a lot of weird little stores. and, And my friend's parents owned this weird little store where they had burgers and milkshakes and also like Tourist stuff, the store no longer exists, you wonder why. Uh, And and I was in my friend's parents' store, and nobody was looking, and he had showed me how to get into the cash register because he, it's his parents' store, right? He had access to it. They they would allow him to go into the cash register and take cash out if we wanted to go do something around town. Well, I was in the store and nobody was watching, and I thought, I know how to get into the cash register. I'm going to take money out of it. So I open up the cash register, I take $10 out, stick it in my pocket, and I go on my way. Successful heist. I hadn't learned the, the, the phrase, go big or go home yet, right? I took 10 bucks. A couple days later, I'm back in the store, and his parents who owned the store pulled me aside and they said, hey, Andrew, we have cameras up there. <laughs> we saw you take $10. We're not mad at you, but if you need the money, just ask us. We'll give it to you. That was the last time I stole anything because grace transforms. Their, their gracious response, if you need money, ask and we'll give it to you. The reality is I didn't need money. I was trying to figure out who I, who I am. I'm trying to break the law. I'm trying to get this adrenaline rush, like whatever teenagers do, right? Right? whatever adults do like sin is a weird tricky thing we don't really know why we do all the things that we do but their grace transformed me it was a step of my transformation and today we see a similar story in the scriptures we see how grace and forgiveness transforms we're going to read John chapter 7 verses 53 through 811 I'm going to ask that you stand as I read our text for today. It's on page 894 in the Pew Bible. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, do I condemn you? Go, and from now on, sin no more. Lord Jesus, thank you for your promise, for your statement. Neither do I condemn you. Lord, I pray even here and now in this moment that the multiple layers of condemnation that each one of us feels would dissipate in the light of your glory and grace. And Lord, may that grace empower us and transform us to go and sin no more. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, as we get into this passage, there's three things that we're going to do today. We need to talk about the controversy regarding this passage. Some of you, even as I read it, you were probably like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know if I trust this church and pastor because he's reading this passage, and we'll talk about that for a minute. We'll look at the content of this story specifically, and then the congruence of this story with other biblical texts. So the controversy about this passage. Let's start there. You notice in your Bible that there's a little headline that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. And then if you have a study Bible at home, I encourage you to read it to learn a little bit more about that. In fact, that's true. The very earliest manuscripts of Scripture of the Gospel of John do not include this passage. There are manuscripts early on that include this passage. It's, it's believed that the story really happens. Some, uh, some people place it in the Gospel of Luke rather than the Gospel of John. There is debate and question about the origin of this story more so where it fits than that it really happened. And so one of the reasons why I think we can trust this compiled word is because those who have edited it over the years and transcribed it and preserved it for us have gone to great lengths to study the original manuscripts and and to be accurate to what was actually there. And when there's something with a little bit of question, they will let us know. There's two helpful descriptions that I just want to read for us. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible says the earliest manuscripts and most other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36 or 21:25. Luke 21:38, Luke 24:53 because the story fits the char- but because the story fits the character of Jesus however many consider it an authentic story about him that is simply out of place where it stands it's likely that it doesn't actually belong here in fact if you if you read John 7 the feast of tabernacles which we looked at a couple weeks ago and then into the second part of John chapter 8 where Jesus says I am the light of the world those fit together as part of the feast of tabernacles so this story seems out of place placed right here DA Carson in his commentary on John, says, There is little reason for doubting that the event described here occurred, even if in its written form it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. Similar stories are found in other sources, and the narrative before us also has a number of parallels with stories in the Synoptic Gospels. The reason for its insertion here may be to illustrate chapter 7, verse 24, chapter 8, verse 15, and eight 59. Let's look at those really quick. Chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus teaches, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. Fits kind of the theme of the woman caught in adultery, right? Judging by appearance, judging by what's happening rather than what's going on in the heart. John 8, 15, Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. It's a teaching that he made, and this story kind of fits the theme of that teaching. And then look at the end of chapter 8, verse 59. This is after Jesus teaches that he is God, that before Abraham he was, and the religious leaders are ticked. It says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. Oh, the second time in John that stones are picked up to condemn someone, to crucify someone, not crucify, kill someone by stoning. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so that's why some people place it there. Uh, I've decided to preach this text because I think it is a passage. That I think it's a story, a situation that really happened in Scripture. There's enough uh, textual evidence and manuscript evidence that this is a legitimate story. This is something that Jesus really did. And just the placement of it is weird, and they've kind of lost the right placement of it. Regardless, this story does not communicate anything that breaks from or separates from the gospel, it brings so much clarity and context and color to who Jesus is and what Jesus has already been teaching and doing. And we're gonna see that as we go. That's that third point about this passage's congruence with other biblical texts. We're gonna look at a lot of scripture this morning to see how this passage can kind of be overlaid among other passages in scripture and how to bring it to life. So the second thing that we need to do this morning here is now just consider the content of the story. The content of the story. So it records, verse 2, that early in the morning, he began, he came again to the temple, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see Jesus often in the temple teaching, and he's teaching with authority. People are are gravitating towards Jesus' teaching. He's teaching unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. The Gospels, all the different Gospels, will give us accounts of how the scribes and the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus' teaching because he was teaching as one who had true authority. And they're, they're teachers of the law, they're teachers of religion, they're teachers of institution. Jesus is a teacher of the gospel, the good news, the gospel of grace. He's a healer. He's here to deal with people's souls, not religious conformity. And so there's this, there's this skepticism and this jealousy among the religious leaders and in the institution about Jesus, And so he's here back in the temple. He's teaching. Verse 3 says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, adultery is a serious sin with significant pain and wounding and consequences. In fact, it was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Now, there's people in our own church who have dealt with the effects of adultery. There is forgiveness for the adulterer, and we see that in the story, and there is forgiveness and healing for those who have been sinned against. So I want you to hear that. That's what we see in Jesus. But we also have to acknowledge that this sin, and, and we don't know they're like, the, we don't know if the man got away quicker or if the religious leaders didn't bring the man before Jesus because the man might have been from among them. They want to like, protect the identity of the man. and So they grab the woman to bring her in. And we know that they're actually not that concerned about the sin. They're concerned about catching Jesus. Right? That's what we're told here in this text. Keep reading. Verse 6. It says, They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they, they bring her before them. They bring her before Jesus. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, Verse 4, you just feel the shame caught in the act? She's guilty. This, this word adultery, it means to break the marriage vows. She is sleeping with someone who is not her husband and she's probably sleeping with somebody who is also married. And she's brought before Jesus. They say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Okay, so that's the law. It's a serious sin with significant consequence underneath the Old Testament law. So what do you say? They say this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, they're doing two things here. They're trying to catch Jesus breaking the Old Testament law because the Old Testament law says that that she has earned death by stoning. But the Roman law, and they're, they're in Jerusalem here, but they're underneath The Roman law, the Roman Empire controls Jerusalem and and the Jewish religion and the Jewish practice. They've given them some jurisdiction to govern themselves. But at the end of the day, the Roman law says that capital punishment, that Jews cannot take capital punishment into their own hands. It has to be a Roman thing. That's why the Jews couldn't crucify Jesus without the Romans' approval of it and the Romans' actually putting Jesus upon a Roman cross. And so they're, they're, they're trying to catch Jesus between will he uphold the Old Testament law of God or will he break the Roman law by doing that? What's Jesus gonna do? Their motive is not to actually deal with the sin of adultery or to deal with this woman. Their motive is to try and catch Jesus. I, I want us to just pause and, and consider the shame of this woman caught in the act. How many of you have been caught telling a lie, caught hiding something, caught doing something, maybe as big as adultery, maybe not, doesn't matter, they're all equal in God's eyes, and it's shaming, right? You feel embarrassed, you feel shamed when you're caught in the act, and she is caught in the act. But being caught in the act of sin by religious people only amplifies the pain. Some of you have dealt with that. You've been caught in the act of sin, whatever that sin is, by religious people who condemned you and they heap condemnation upon condemnation upon condemnation. And I'm sorry for that. That is not what we see Jesus do here in the text. The religious institution and the religious leaders, they they catch her in the act and they're using her to try and catch Jesus and, and, and it reveals their hard hearts and their hearts of judgment That's not the way of Jesus. So those of you who have been hurt by religious leaders and institutions that have caught you in the act of sin and shamed you publicly for that, I am sorry on your behalf. It's not the way of Jesus. Make sure that we are trying to separate the way of Jesus and the way of the world and the way of religion and the way of institution. So she's caught in the act, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they're also caught in the act, right? They're caught in the act of of trying to catch Jesus, they're caught in the act of using the law to break a human spirit and soul. They're just as guilty. Here's the point. We're all guilty of being caught in the act. Some of us are caught in the act of breaking the law like the woman. Some of us are caught in the act of using the law to break another person, like the Pharisees. Actually, most of us fit both categories. Remember, if you're, if you're looking down on adultery, Jesus had actually said committing lust with your eye, whether you're a man lusting after a woman, whether you're a man lusting after a man, whether you're a woman lusting after a man, whether you're a woman lusting after a, man, a, woman, lusting after a woman. Adultery. We're guilty. You and I are just as guilty as the woman caught in the act. We're also just as guilty as the Pharisees and the scribes who use their religious tradition and their rules to look down upon another person. Ever been guilty of that? Put your hand up nice and high. Yes, welcome to the club. We're all caught in the act. And there's four sources of condemnation that, that we need to be aware of. Jesus deals with definitely two of them here. I think they're all at play. Four sources of condemnation that we live with daily. There's the law. The law condemns. The New Testament is going to teach us that the Old Testament law was given to condemn us, to actually show that we can't fulfill it. And so that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're saying, this woman was caught in the act of, the adul- of adultery. The law condemns her to the point of death. You and I, we live underneath the daily tension of feeling condemned by the law, by the righteous moral law of God. We're also condemned by other people, whether those are religious people or irreligious people. And we just live with that, Right? I mean, we live in cancel culture. You do something wrong, you say something wrong, you, you verbally process something out loud, and you get canceled? What is that other than condemnation? Condemned by your brothers and sisters in Christ? Condemned by culture? It doesn't matter. We live in this daily reality intention where we feel the condemnation of other people. Not only that, though, we feel condemnation of ourselves. You know your, actually, you don't know your worst sins. Usually those are hidden. The Bible tells us that there's this prayer that David prays, God, reveal to me my hidden sins. You're aware of the sins that bubble up to the surface. You're aware of like the fruit of your sins. You're probably unaware of the deep root causes for your sins. But as we become aware of our sin, as we catch ourselves in sin, as we continue a sin pattern, we condemn ourselves. We feel shame. We feel guilt. We feel burdened by our sin. And then Satan... He condemns us daily, religiously, consistently. The Bible says that he's the accuser of the brethren. And so we live in this daily reality. The, the woman caught in adultery, she's living in this, the law condemns her. The Pharisees and scribes are condemning her. I have to imagine she's condemning herself as she is out in public being shamed for her sin. She's probably condemning herself, right? Like, yes, I fell short. I fell either that or she's getting defensive, which is just another way of trying to deal with your internal source of condemnation. And then the accuser, Satan, of course he's condemning her. And this is true for you and I as well. This is what the woman is caught in. This is what all of us are caught in. And it's in this place that Jesus does something interesting. As the Pharisees try to use the law of Moses against both Jesus and the woman, Jesus bends down to write. We're meant to remember another time when God's finger wrote something. Catch this. This is significant. Look at verse 6. They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. The first action he does. He doesn't say anything right away. He just bends down and starts writing with his finger. These scribes and Pharisees are well-versed in the Old Testament law and the creation of the law. I think this is what's happening I think Jesus is showing them, reminding them about the last time that God used his finger to write. In Exodus, it says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. God coming down, Jesus physically bending down. I think we're meant to see that The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went. If you remember, this is when the Israelites, God's people, are wandering through the wilderness. They're here at Mount Sinai, and God is going to give them the law see how God comes down in fire and fury and smoke? He, he, he descends to their level. He stoops. We pick the story up in Exodus chapter 32. There's a lot of content in between these two, but let's jump to Exodus 32 where it says, Then Moses turned and he went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. God descends upon the mountain, calls Moses to meet him on the mountain. God bends down from heaven To communicate the law, he writes it with his finger on tablets of stone. Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets. And as he's coming down, God's people, the Israelites, they are partying. They are worshiping false gods. They have melted all the gold and made a golden calf to worship. It's this despicable scene of them already breaking the Ten Commandments, which Moses is coming down the mountain with. And Moses, in his anger, he throws the stone tablets and breaks the law. He has to go back up the mountain, and God has to descend one more time and rewrite the law on the stone tablets. Look at Exodus 34, 1, 5, uh, and 4 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, and as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Look at what Jesus is doing here in John, verse 6, the second half. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. These scribes and Pharisees are meant to see this 2,000 years later in a different different culture, different language. We're meant to see this. This is a recreation, a renewing of the law. Jesus bends down and he writes with his finger, verse 7, and they continue to ask him. As they continue to ask him, they just continue to ask him, right? Like, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do, Jesus? He stood up and he said to them, let... Him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her? What a great revealing question, right? Like anytime you start feeling judgmental towards another person, condemning towards another person, do like what Jesus had taught in another gospel, like consider the plank in your own eye before the speck in another's. Can you really condemn them? Can you really judge them? Can you really throw a stone at that person when you've got all of your own baggage? So, this is Jesus' invitation go ahead. Yeah, you can uphold the Old Testament law and stone her if you're perfect. Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. See how in Exodus it records God descending twice, writing on stone twice. Here in John 8, Jesus bending down twice, writing in the ground twice. We're meant to see that once again the creator comes down and imprints his law upon creation. But this time it's not the law of moral perfection written upon stone tablets communicated with fire and smoke and fury. Rather, it's the law of grace written upon human hearts and communicated by the transformative power of love and forgiveness. The declaration that Jesus makes here in verse 11 neither do I condemn you. See, everyone in this story in John chapter 8, other than Jesus, of course, and everyone in this church building and online is guilty. None is righteous. We all stand condemned by our own actions before Jesus. We've all broken the law. And we've all used, we have all used the law to break others, to condemn and judge others. We're all caught in the act. The point is, we've all broken the, broken the law and we stand guilty before Jesus, unable to throw a stone at another because we ourselves deserve the stone. And it's in this place that Jesus offers us grace. This story is showing the biblical movement from law to grace, from law to grace. John has already taught us in his gospel, in John chapter 1, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a beautiful picture again of God descending. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. See how Jesus is, is demonstrating that for them here in this story? Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. You who is without sin, you throw the first stone. Nobody can condemn this woman. And then go and sin no more. I've called you to a new life of holiness and pursuit of me. And we all know that's a, that's a tricky statement, right? She will go and sin again. But next time that she sins, what is she going to do? She's going to run to the one who forgives sin, not run to the people who condemn sin and make a public spectacle of shame for her sin. That's how it works. That's how grace works. It gets us to run back and back and back to it, asking for more forgiveness, for more grace, for more covering. It invites us in. John 3, 17, Jesus had already taught us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See how this story just beautifully captures the, the sweep in Scripture of law to Grace. This redemptive shift from Old Testament law to New Testament grace. Now I want to take you on a quick journey to see this story's congruence with other biblical texts. I'm going to cover a lot of texts here. They're going to be on the screen. Usually I like to have you flip to them to see them in your own Bibles, but I've put them on the screen so that we can just move through this. So if there are four sources of condemnation, right? The law, other people, whether they're religious or irreligious people, ourselves, our own conscience, and Satan, I want you to see how Jesus both satisfies and silences condemnation. Here's what I mean by satisfies. We're all guilty. So condemnation needs to be served. Judgment needs to be made. Jesus satisfies the judgment. He takes our condemnation upon his own shoulders. And I want you to see how that works here in the scriptures. So let's look at a few passages and see the congruence of this text, this story in John chapter eight with other biblical texts. The first one is that Jesus satisfies the condemnation of the law. So the law rightly condemns us. We've all broken it. None of us can measure up to the law. The scribes and the Pharisees knew it. That's why they dropped their stones and walked away. The woman knew it. The man who was with the woman knew it. You know it. There's a perfect moral law. There is a holy other God who is perfect, and we don't measure up. And Jesus satisfies the condemnation that the law brings. He says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Thank you, Jesus. He says in Romans 8, 1 through 4, in, in Romans chapter. 6, 7, 8, just read all of those later today. Like, cancel your plans and just go read Romans 6, 7, and 8, and you will get this idea in a much greater way. Jesus satisfies the condemnation of the law. Look at how Paul says it in the book of Romans. He says, There is therefore no condemnation, praise the Lord, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't condemn you. He condemned the sin in your flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's key. In us. Not by us. In us. He did it in us. You can't fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. You needed someone else to do it for you. And so he fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 will unpack that more for you. Now, if we are in Christ, we walk according to the Spirit. We are not in bondage to the flesh any longer. But do you see how Scripture is teaching us that Jesus satisfies the condemnation upon our shoulders that the law brings? You no longer have to live your life underneath the condemnation of God's morally perfect law because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Can I get an amen? Amen. Second thing, Jesus satisfies the condemnation of others. You feel this one, right? How often have you felt condemned, judged, shamed, canceled by other people? And rightly so. Huh? How many people have you wronged? How many people have you hurt? And sometimes their judgment of us is accurate. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. You and I were caught in the act of all kinds of stupid stuff. And other people have a right to be disappointed in us and to feel ashamed or or condemning towards us now, but not Christians. Here's the rub. We're people of forgiveness. And so when you feel condemnation and judgment and shame from a Christian, that's them not walking in the Spirit and living like Jesus. But we all do it. So let's have grace for each other's gracelessness. Okay? So Jesus satisfies the condemnation of others. And isn't that what this story in John 7, uh, John 8 is about? Jesus says, Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw the stone at her. There's non-righteous. There's none who have upheld this law. There's, 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 and then right, the story goes on. They all walk away and he says, where are they? Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Another passage where we see this play out, Jesus satisfies the condemnation of others. Romans 8.1, we already saw this, but there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? who shall condemn us. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was also raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus satisfies the condemnation of others upon you. doesn't matter what others think about you, how others judge you, how others condemn you. This is teaching us that because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you do not sit underneath the judgment or the condemnation of another person. Amen? Third, Jesus satisfies the condemnation of our own hearts. Right? So we're condemned by the law. We're condemned by other people. We're also condemned by ourselves. We know our own broken actions and we like to punish ourselves. Here's what the scripture teaches us. John in one of his letters, he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God. For whoever, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. He's saying your heart doesn't need to condemn you any longer. It does, right? Like that's the tricky thing of like we have grace and we are trying to learn to live it out. John is teaching us here that when your heart condemns you, when you start shaming yourself, when you start judging yourself, when you start beating yourself up, when you start condemning yourself, God is greater than your heart. That's the old man, the old woman rearing its ugly head. Don't listen to condemnation of self. God is greater than your heart. Your heart ought not to condemn you. You ought to have confidence before God because you are a new creation. Third, uh, fourth, last one Jesus, Jesus satisfies the condemnation of Satan. So, not, not only do we feel the condemnation of the law and other people and ourselves, but we also feel the condemnation of the accuser Satan, the accuser of the brethren. I want to take you to one of my favorite stories in Scripture to see this play out. Zechariah chapter three verses one through four, and this is a vision that God gives Zechariah. Says then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him or condemn him. And the Lord said to Satan, "The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you is not this a brand plucked from the fire?" Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What an incredible story. Here's the scene. Here's the vision that Zechariah has. Joshua, the high priest. Think of him like the pope. Well, some of you don't think highly of the pope. Think of him like the religious figure who you think the most highly of. They are supposed to be the holiest representative of God here on earth. They're the person who's taught you more than anyone. You've never seen them, like, just your religious idol. That's Joshua. He's standing before God. And Satan and the angel of the Lord are there. The angel of the Lord is a Christophany. It's Jesus in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we'll we'll see, it'll talk about angels, It'll talk about an angel, and then when it talks about the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus, pre incarnate. And so Joshua is standing before God, Satan's there accusing him, and Jesus is there. And Yahweh, God, says to Satan, I rebuke you. He doesn't rebuke Joshua, the high priest, and Joshua's guilty. Right. What does it say in the middle of the passage? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. These garments are his priestly garments, his robe. They're stained. He's guilty. We don't know what they're stained with. It's blood on his hands. He's guilty as charged. He's caught in the act of embezzlement, of adultery, of judgment. Who knows? The holiest man on earth is caught, well, holiest man on earth is caught in the act, standing before God. Satan is rightly accusing him, condemning him. He's guilty. We all saw him do it. His clothes are proof. Look at him. He's a fraud. He's a failure. He can't do it. And God is standing there and Jesus at his right hand. And what does he say? And the angel said to those who were standing by, there's this myriad of angels, remove the filthy garments from him. Take that sin away. Remove the stain. Remove the guilt. Remove the shame. Remove the condemnation. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I clothe you with pure vestments. No judgment. No condemnation. Amen? This is our God. This is God in flesh. Jesus full of grace and truth. He silences the accusation of the enemy. He is for you, not against you. One more passage as we close out this morning. Jesus satisfies the condemnation of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 11 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brother's That's Satan has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. He has been silenced. He has been satisfied. He has been thrown down. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus because of the blood of the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Amen? So I'm going to invite you now to come to the communion stations when you feel led and ready and take the bread symbolizing the body given for you and drink the cup symbolizing the blood of the lamb shed for you so that you can live your life without condemnation and judgment and shame. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Join me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that though all of us in this room are guilty as charged, we're all caught in the act of something or another. You, Jesus, look us in the eyes and you say, neither do I condemn you. You have forgiven us. You have washed it away. You have made us clean. And then in that, you call us to go and sin no more. Lord, I pray that we would receive your grace so that we could then live out of your grace. Nourish us now with this meal that reminds us of your body given for us and your blood shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.